I can already hear that you've found the text in your bulletin. Today, <clears throat> we will need the handout there for you to follow along. It's from a book by Johnson M. Cheney, or Cheney entitled The Life of Christ in Stereo, which was published in 1969. Instead of switching back and forth through all four Gospels and trying to follow really a multitude of references to one Gospel account or another, although Mark is very complete in his account, we can easily follow the sequence of events of Christ's arrest and betrayal with this particular document in which we see the different gospel accounts supplementing each other in stereo. Instead of verse numbers, you'll see a 1 for Matthew's account, 2 for Mark's, 3 for Luke's, 4 for John's. Our text in Mark is chapter 14, verses 14, 43 through 52. It's short enough that you'll be able to find what you want just by what's happening instead of by verse numbers. And I'll also be using some of Dawson McAllister's material from A Walk with Christ to the Cross. Only the older folks in here know who that is and maybe what it, what, it, what, what it is. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus and his disciples go to Gethsemane after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. Christ knew the hour had come. It was time for him to face the most troubling night of his life leading up to the sacrifice of his own life for the sins of those he came to save. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we learned that Jesus faced unimaginable sorrow and anguish, so much so that he even said he could die from the intensity and the weight of it. Even so, Jesus was still looking out for his disciples and tenderly preparing them so that later, after he had risen from the dead, they would be able to look back on these last momentous events in Jesus' life and finally recognize how their own pride and misplaced trust in their own strength had sent them running into the darkness and cowering in fear, literally. This most important lesson in discipleship had to be learned in this painful and heart-wrenching way. Seth just led us in a prayer that actually voiced that principle over and over and over again. All of these men would flee into the night and they would have their faith tested as never before. After all, one who had been among their own, Judas Iscariot, was now approaching Jesus to betray him. 
And before that actually happened, Jesus had fervently prayed by himself three times that if possible, the cup he faced would be removed from him. But instead of insisting or demanding what would be the easier path, Jesus prayed to the Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. So finally, he came to terms with what was now just ahead and resolutely goes to meet his betrayer. Voluntarily presenting himself to arrest and death, knowing that the hour was at hand. We left off two weeks ago with Mark 14, last part of verse 41 and verse verse 42, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, Are you still sleeping and taking a rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's probably around midnight or 1 a.m. in the morning. The garden had been quiet, but very suddenly all that changed. Many think that there were several hundred men who were accompanying Judas. And the sound of them approaching with lanterns and torches and swords and clubs literally filled the night. Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish policemen, and Roman soldiers, all led by Judas. And despite this clamor and this show of force, Judas, Jesus displayed an overwhelming majesty and dignity and calm. Would you please stand as I read section A here of your handout? Section A. And immediately while he was yet speaking, behold, a great crowd drew near, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place, for Jesus often had resorted there or met there with his disciples. So Judas, having received a band of soldiers, together with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of the people, was coming there with torches and lanterns and with swords and clubs. And the betrayer had given them a token or a sign saying, The one whom I shall kiss, he it is. Seize him and lead him safely away. So on arriving, he at once approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, for what purpose have you come? But he came up to Jesus and said, Master, Master, hail, Master. And he fervently kissed him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man 
with a kiss. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here in this first section, we see Jesus is the calm, almighty one. First, let's set the scene. Dead set on doing his evil deed, Judas arrives in Gethsemane. He had obviously been very busy since leaving Jesus and the other disciples earlier that evening. Evidently, he had gone to the high priest, Caiaphas, to tell him that the opportunity to arrest Jesus had finally arrived. And Caiaphas then had to get together some temple police and seek permission to use the services of a cohort of Roman soldiers. And then Judas had to lead them to the garden. He and the arresting officers had worked out their secret, not-so-secret signals. In the darkness of the night, even with torches, it would have been very hard to tell which person there was Jesus. So Judas would be the one to positively identify him. But when Jesus saw Judas and this large crowd, he did not try to get away or even resist. Calmly, Jesus walked toward them and waited, waited for Judas. Jesus Christ, you see, is still in charge. He is willing to let Judas do his evil deed. And as Judas approached, Jesus asked him a question and notice what he called Judas, his friend, his companion. Doesn't it seem strange to you that Jesus was still calling Judas his friend? If it doesn't, it should. We're supposed to notice this. Was he just preventing a riot by calling him his friend? Or was he calling attention to the depth of the wickedness it takes to betray a person that you had pretended to love and serve? Judas refuses to answer Christ's question of, for what purpose have you come? Instead, he just proceeds with his charade by calling out, Master, Master, Hail, Master, Rabbi. One of those words is right, it's close. Or greetings, Rabbi, is the way Matthew says it. And then kissing Jesus in the common Middle East manner of very close friends. The English term, the kiss of death, came into our vocabulary from this event, in case you didn't realize that. The English term, kiss of death, came into being right then and there. Jesus was no doubt saddened and grieved by Judas's action. So he asked Judas a question that would haunt him until his suicide. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? 
Judas, you were with me. You ate with me. You traveled with me. You ministered with me. Next, in section B of your handout, we see that Jesus' calmness and almighty power literally overwhelmed the crowd. We read there, Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas also, he who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when therefore he said to them, I am, they drew backward and fell to the ground. So again he asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you're seeking me, let these go away. That the word which he had spoken might be fulfilled. Quote, of those whom thou hast given me, I lost none. Unquote. Stepping around Judas, Jesus walked calmly up to the crowd of Jewish leaders and policemen and Roman soldiers. He was not terrified. He was not angry. He was ready. Then he asked the crowd a very simple question. Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Then he supplied... The, the he that is supplied here in our English text is only in the English text. So Jesus' response really is simply, I am, which is the way I read it one time. Sound familiar to anyone? Whom do you seek? I am. John records in his accounts in his gospel, seven times, very famously, I am statements. Seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here we see another one with just I am. We all know that on many occasions when Jesus referred to himself as I am, he was declaring himself to be God. This I am is the solemn covenant name, Yahweh. If you put some consonants in there, Jehovah, same word. We learned in Sunday school today a little more about that name and what we'll be learning in Sunday school next year. Exciting to realize that. Look what happened to the crowd when Jesus said this. They drew backward and fell upon the ground. 
First time I noticed this was way too old. I don't know why this never hit before college age. This is striking. This is a reaction to divine revelation that we see many times in Scripture. Then he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And again they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. And this should remind us that when people are engaged and enraged with God, they tend to inflate any supported advantage they have and then do not hesitate to rise up against God even more over and over and over again. So that the pure hatred of God having any say in their life can be displayed for all to see, especially themselves. But that has not happened yet, has it? But when he walked up and he identified himself, we don't really know what happened that made them fall over backwards. But something definitely did. We see next a most important, precious, and loving display by Jesus to protect and preserve his men. And don't miss this. In the middle of this whole, whole most important event and circumstances, Jesus is constantly doing things to protect his disciples In the John 18, verses 8 and 9, we read, So if you seek me, you will let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. This was what Jesus prayed, part of it in his high priestly prayer that John records. The intensity of the grammar is how I just read it. What you actually see is, so if you seek me, let these men go. But it's not a question. It's more of a redundant question that they should know the answer because of who he is. So it's quite appropriate for us to understand that it should sound like this. So if you seek me, you will let these men go. So while it looked like it may have been a request, may have sounded like a request, it was actually Jesus' authority working and on display. And Judas, you see, was not even, was not ever truly a genuine believer in Christ and was in God's sovereign plan and according to Judas' own evil desires, doing exactly what he wanted to do in betraying Jesus. Now, even under this tremendous pressure, 
Jesus was still looking out for and protecting his disciples. The arresting officers yielded and let the disciples go free just then Jesus had saved their lives. I don't know that you thought about this, but there's some spatial issues here. Jesus went from where he was with his disciples up to Judas, the Roman soldiers, and all these religious leaders, and said this and did this and answered their question. Who was between them and the disciples? Jesus Christ, the Lord. So when he identified himself as God, as Yahweh, whether they got that or not, there may have easily been some other demonstration of power and authority on display that made this crowd literally fall over. If you go back through scripture, you'll notice that when God reveals himself, or lets men know that they're in his presence, very often the same sort of thing happens. Very often. Next we see Jesus' greatness at his arrest is displayed in his voluntary, voluntary willingness to let himself be arrested. Let's... Look at section C. Then they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Now when those standing about him saw what would follow, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And behold, Simon Peter stretched out his hand And drawing his sword, struck the high priest's bondman and cut off his right ear. And the name of the bondservant was Malchus. But Jesus answering said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus said therefore to Peter, put back your sword into its sheath. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now call to my father and he will furnish me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? What a passage. Needless to say, Christ would never have been arrested unless he had voluntarily let it happen. Now we get to see Peter in action. It shouldn't surprise us. Finally, the officers began to move in on Christ and see him, seized him to lead him away. But the disciples were ready to fight in order to protect Jesus. Probably, maybe, the display of Jesus' power that had caused the crowd to hit the dirt made them a little bolder. 
The eleven men then asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But Peter didn't wait for Jesus' answer. Did you notice that? He attacked Malchus, a servant of the high priest, and he wasn't trying to cut off his ear. I hope you notice that. He was trying to cut off the guy's head, which is what you do with a sword when it hits that part of the body. Thank goodness he missed and just got his ear. Obviously, this nearly got all of his disciples killed. John MacArthur notes here that Peter had boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, and acted too fast. So he invariably seemed to miss the point of what Jesus was saying and doing. Let's go back. Put your own name in there and see if it fits. Bobby had boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, and acted too fast. So Bobby invariably seemed to miss the point of what Jesus was saying and doing. Sort of fits us, does it not? Jesus then again calmly said, permit even this, which is another way of saying no more of this. That's it. No more. And he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. Peter, Peter, Peter. After repeated warnings that he would deny Jesus, and he would fall away. What could be going on in Peter's mind right now? This must be the test. This was that crucial test. I'm not going to fail this one. I'm not going to deny him. (laughs) See? Isn't that what we often do? He thought his test of loyalty had finally arrived. Now look. Peter was magnificent in that he rushed in to defend Jesus with his life. He was courageous, but whoa, was he impetuous. He was pathetic in that regard, and his courage evaporated when Jesus undoes Peter's damage, think about that, rebukes him, forbids any more violence, and doesn't resist being arrested. Jesus does not resist. But then Christ sets the record straight here, does he not? Gently but firmly, Jesus rebuked Peter for his misguided zeal. He told Peter to put his sword away and said, for all who take the sword... We'll perish by the sword. And there's several lessons here for Peter and for us. And by the way, we're going to figure out what Jesus meant by this. But this is one of the most misquoted and misunderstood statements that's ever been made. Let's look at it. First, Jesus wanted him to know that swords and weapons would never Build God's kingdom. 
How many years did it take for people that claim to be Christians to completely ignore this? Ever heard of the Crusades? Think about it. It was soon and often over and over again in history. Jesus wanted him to know that swords and weapons would never build God's kingdom. In other words, Peter's use of his sword was dangerous. Peter had to be reminded, and really this was for all the disciples, that he was called to a different way of life. In other words, what does that mean? Well, John MacArthur has an explanation here that's, that's pretty short, and it covers all the bases, so I'd like to read that to you. Jesus was not philosophizing by declaring that everyone who takes up arms will himself be killed by arms or that a person who uses violence will be killed violently. His point was that those who commit acts of violence to achieve personal ends will face punishment by civil authorities. The sword representing a common means of execution in the ancient world, he was simply reiterating the divine standard set forth in Genesis. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man, Genesis 9.6. To protect the sanctity of human life, God declares that the one who wantonly takes the life of another person is subject to capital punishment. In telling Peter to put his sword back into its place, Jesus was saying, in effect, no matter how wicked or unjust my arrest is, this is what Jesus is saying by what's going on, You have no right, Peter, or my disciples, to take vigilante action. If you take a life while doing that, your own life will justly be forfeited as punishment. Whoa. Texas and the West are not the only places that need to understand this. Jesus was not speaking about self-defense or the defense of loved ones or friends from an attacker, nor was he talking about fighting in the armed forces of one's country. He was referring to violently taking justice into one's hands, into your own hands. Under no circumstances does a Christian or anyone else have the right to dispense personal justice even to defend Christ's name or word. Maybe we just need to let that sink in. It's something I think we all need to hear over and over. The more frustrated we get with what's going on around us, because it's so blatantly against God and wrong, we need to see what Jesus teaches here, and we need to remember it. Those of you that are keeping track of the attack on the Christian church in 
China especially right now, it is amazing to read what some of the pastors who have been able to get out this information are saying as they make these distinctions. Because the name of Christ is at stake. Peter got the lesson. Literally. We can't imagine what was going on as he then headed into a situation where he would deny Christ three times. Secondly, Jesus then asked an amazing question. Do you think that I cannot now call to my father and he will furnish me more than 12 legions of angels? Anybody know the math there? That's 72,000 angels. Like one wouldn't be enough. All Jesus had to do was ask. What a rebuke. In other words, Peter's use of his sword was unnecessary. First, it was dangerous. Second, it was unnecessary. Jesus clearly did not need to be defended. Jesus was arrested because he was willing to be arrested. He suffered a voluntary death for our sins. And third, Jesus asked Peter two related penetrating questions. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, Peter's use of his sword was mistaken. Last week, you were treated to one of the best sermons on Isaiah 53 I've ever heard. Yes, I listened to it this week after we got back. That's what we're talking about here. Isaiah 53, 7 does not describe a warrior, a superhero with gifts that can destroy everything every creative artist and comic book person has ever dreamed of. Isaiah 53, 7 describes a person who willingly died for us. And we see that all over the place. Psalm 22, especially, and Psalm 69 again. In other words, what's the bottom line? It was more important that Scripture be fulfilled than that he should escape suffering. It was more important that Scripture be fulfilled than that he should escape suffering. We celebrate Christmas with this decision being made 
in eternity past that Jesus would willingly and voluntarily limit himself in the body of a human being, being fully God himself, in order to do what we cannot do for ourselves. This adds a magnitude to it that we can't even describe. And lastly, in section D, we see Jesus' greatness here at his rest. We, need, we see that, but we need to see that Christ spoke to the conscience of his captors. Don't miss this. But at the same hour, Jesus said to the crowds, And to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders who had come out to arrest him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to seize me? Daily I sat with you teaching in the temple and you did not arrest me. You stretched forth no hands against me. But this has all come to pass. Here we go that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then he says something really striking. This is your hour and the power of darkness. This whole show of force, soldiers, police, weapons, religious leaders, etc., this came across as ridiculous to Christ. And it should hit us as ridiculous as well. He forcefully rebuked them here for their sickening charade led by Judas. They were treating him like a robber on the run from the law. But he had committed no crime. But they were treating him like a robber on run from the law while presenting themselves as what? The protectors and the enforcers of the law. He didn't commit any crime. Never had, never would. And even if he had, he could have been arrested while he taught in the temple where everyone was. And he makes this point very clear right here, does he not? He had never tried to hide anything. Jesus set the religious leaders straight as to what was really happening when he told them that all this has come to pass, that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Well, what does your hour and the power of darkness mean? Jesus grants them this liberty for a short time. It refers to the power of of the devil. And though these people are exalting themselves, Jesus is letting them know that they are still nothing more than slaves of the evil one. And as soon as Jesus said this, what happened to the disciples? They were gone in panic in the night. Last section E. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
And a certain young man was following with him, having only a linen cloth about his body. And the young man laid hold of him, but leaving behind the linen cloth, he fled from them naked. This certain young man could have been Mark. A lot of people think so, because Mark's the only gospel writer that includes it in his event. Everybody else had taken off, and here this guy was kind of hanging with the crowd or following the disciples to this whole thing, kind of sneaking around behind them. You notice he didn't have much on. It's almost like he got pulled out of bed or decided to go when he saw what was going on. Could have been Mark. He identified himself close enough with Jesus' group, though, for the authorities here to seize him or try to seize him, but he escaped. And alone, then now in the garden, Jesus allowed his enemies to tie him up and lead him away to face the rest of the long night and receive cruel treatment. Can we say that, knowing what that cruel treatment entailed? And then his own crucifixion not long afterward. Although our last view of Jesus finds him arrested and bound here, we can be sure that the only thing that really bound him was his love for the Father and for us. Do you realize that? And his determination to carry out his Father's will, complete this mission. Why? Because he was truly King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, if you were here and you remember Blake going through Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 was talking about how Christ did this willingly, willingly. It wasn't because he was helpless. Let me read these and adding a word at the end of each little statement of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted willingly. Yet he opened not his mouth willingly. That's coming up during the trial. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter willingly. Like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth willingly. On purpose. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away willingly. Get the point? This is God in human flesh who's doing this for you and for me. And if he hadn't done it, we would be lost in our sins and every single one of us has no hope. There's no reason for being here and there's no future for us at all. Only condemnation from a holy God, because we deserve it. And yet here we see Jesus on the way to the trials. Praise God that we can celebrate the birth of this person. Not as a cute little baby. But as one who entered our world willingly. 
voluntarily to purchase us with the price of his blood. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to this next week, we pray that you would use our time and all the things going on at this time of the year to make us aware of our need to ponder, think about, be grateful for, to sing, pray, encourage, because of the, the true gift that Jesus is to us, that you decided to give and that he agreed with willingly, joyfully. We know that for the joy set before him, he endured your wrath. Help us put these stories together in a way that makes us value you through him, that makes us want to bow down on our knees as an act of of love and loyalty and dependence. We ask that you'd bind us together in his love because you have put us in him and Put him in us. Lord, open our eyes to not take for granted the gifts that you give and not to bemoan our own circumstances no matter how difficult they may be in such a way that would lose sight of your bigger picture. Instead, use the body of Christ to see, care, pray, as we minister in situations that are hard and suffering. To always look back to Christ's willingness to go through whatever he had to go through to accomplish the purpose of bringing honor and glory to you and to purchase a people for himself. Lord, we thank you for this, this time. May we rejoice in him as we understand better and better the true cost he paid. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit truly be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.